Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host, Priya Rao, and here with me today is Alessio Rossi, the Executive Vice President of Shiseido and Clay de Poe, and the Head of Digital Transformation of the Americas at Shiseido. Hi, Alessio. How are you? Hi, Priya. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me today. We're so excited to have you, Alessio. Um, I have to say, you know, one of the things that fascinates me about your career and your trajectory is just that, you know, although you've been in beauty for almost two decades, you know, you've always been on the digital side of things, which I think is pretty novel. You know, most people are only now in the last five or 10 years getting involved in digital and you've been there since the start. So I would love you to kind of level set for us what that was like back in the day. I remember over dinner the other night, you had mentioned that there was this thing called Facebook at one of your first jobs and you were telling your boss about that. Will you tell us what you were doing then? Yes, absolutely. I was lucky to be in the right place at the right time so that today people can consider me a veteran of this space. It was actually very serendipitous and, you know, a very happy path. Um, So at that time, I was actually working in fashion. I spent almost half of my career in fashion and the second half in beauty, where I am right now. And um, it was back then, those were the very early days of digital, right? So I believe that Facebook launched in 2004, 2005, something like that. So imagine showing up in Paris in 2006 in one of the most iconic French true luxury fashion brand that you can possibly conceive and tell them that there are five organically raised Facebook groups talking about them and there are 2,000 people animating the conversation. At the time, this seemed like an apocalyptic number. And the response at that time was quite a lukewarm, right? So now we were believing in Facebook already and in the power of social media. We could see the transformation coming down the road. But brands were slightly reluctant to adopt it. And today, without naming the brand, I can tell you they are one of the most relevant, if not the most relevant brand in luxury fashion in social. Would you say that, you know, kind of thinking about it, what you do now and thinking about back then, like the idea of not kind of engaging with those communities on Facebook or even Instagram would be crazy today. You know, like obviously you said that there were five organic accounts back then, but you know, now you kind of have to respond to those communities and and that's probably what you do a lot of today, correct? Well, that was a core to the transformation that happened in the past few years, right? We all come from monodirectional communication. So we were taught to being one, talking to many. We weren't necessarily taught to listen, to get a feedback, and to engage in many multiple concurrent, sometimes asynchronous conversations with our audience, where sometimes also some of these audiences may have a different opinion, and which could be very legit. And I, I think that was a huge change for brands around the world, I think specifically in luxury, because the point of view was, I am telling you what is best for you, so why should I listen? 
when they eventually embraced the power and the opportunity to have a bidirectional dialogue with their consumers, they unleashed a whole different way of running the business. And I can confidently say that if many of the beauty brands have been successful in the past few years, it was actually because of that. You've worked at some pretty amazing places, obviously, before being at Shiseido. You know, you were at Caring, you were at L'Oreal, um, both of which are, you know, luxury and expert-led brands. What kind of education did that kind of give you when everything's moving so fast now in your current role? Well, I can tell you that I never stopped learning, right? These were at different companies at different times geographically positioned very differently with different goals and objectives, although sometimes L'Oreal and Shiseido, of course, are part of the same industry. Um, I would say that the macroeconomic scenario where you play at that specific point in time, as well as the cultural legacy of these companies make most of the difference. So, for example, Shiseido is, of course, a Japanese beauty company with almost 150 years of heritage that is moving east to west. Whereas L'Oreal or Caring, if you will, in a different industry, these are uh, French-born companies, these are French-born companies that are moving west to east. And so that changes the point of view dramatically. So that's a very interesting point that you bring that up. I mean, I don't think a lot of people have talked about that on this show. So for you at Shiseido, like, tell me a little bit about that journey from east to west. Because I know with Clay de Poe, especially, um, you know, that is the utmost luxurious brand in Japan. And, you know, it is a very limited distribution here in the U.S. still. It's still very, I would say, quite precious in a way um, and not mass. Like it's not found in, you know, Sephora or Ulta or any of the larger channels. So could you tell us a little bit about how you kind of create brand awareness and buzz when this is a brand that's beloved in one place, but maybe just starting to get traction here? Yes, so the foundations of Clédipo are very common to, I would say, most of the successful luxury brands across any industries today. And it is all about building a community. It's also strictly associated with the way social has evolved, right? So when you build a community, you, you can do it by sharing common values, across a certain number of people. And then these values are so powerful that you gain more fan and you can continue the conversation. And with that, you can expand your business. And Clidipo has done a very good job at increasing their presence in any markets without, to your point, distributing beyond the boundaries of true luxury distribution. So keeping the distribution very tight is a top priority for us. But at the same time, we grew so much and people ask us, how did you do it? And we did it by fostering the community with authentic, relatable content that we refresh on an ongoing basis. And we make sure also we listen. Once again, this is a brand that was born in Japan. 
And we're growing it in the US, which is a dramatically different scenario and landscape, right? From a business and cultural standpoint, you, you, you can name it. And uh, if you look at the brand in Tokyo and then you shop it in Paris and potentially you research it in New York, you will see it is the same brand, but it talks to consumers in a very slight different way that makes it relevant wherever you go. And I think this is the key to our success. It's not easy. It multiplies our efforts. Sometimes we take risks. And I think it's also because we always try to delight and surprise our consumers that we constantly learn how can we push it further. I remember you telling me, and I thought this was so interesting, that many of the clay de Poe shoppers at the beginning here in the U.S. were, you know, had first experienced the brand in Japan, or they were Japanese expats here in the U.S. And they were kind of like, you know, on college campuses or moved here in metro cities as young adults. And they were kind of spreading the gospel, if you will, for the brand. Would you say that's still the case? So, you know, we were coming for, um, for a traditional customer base, primarily composed by wealthy uh, people of Asian origin, I would say, not just Japanese. And that is somehow still the core of our audience. But we knew that in order to become even more commercially successful, we would have had to adapt our um, core stories for a more local audience. And, you know, sometimes crisis help. So the pandemic arrives and all of a sudden you cannot count on that steady flow of wealthy Asian tourists who come to the U.S. to do their shopping. It's not there anymore overnight. And so that encouraged us to rethink some of what we did and without distorting the brand because the brand was already extremely well designed, we found a ways to make our proposition relatable to, even more relatable to a broader US audience that is more diverse and more inclusive of all the nuances that we have in, in this country. So sometimes a crisis can help you. I think we would have gotten there anyway. We went there a little faster. I know one of the big surprises for Clay de Poe was obviously the launch on Amazon. You know, you're ostensibly the most luxurious beauty brand on Amazon Luxury Beauty. I think the fashion side of things has kind of been accelerated a little bit more than the beauty side, but you are a true luxury brand. I think so many people were surprised by this. Can you tell me a little bit about that partnership? So that was, at a certain extent, um, my responsibility, I, I pushed really, really hard because I thought um, this is a brand that is based on service. It's a truly a customer-centric brand by definition. We were actually originated in a spa. So the human touch point was so important, the connection to the consumer as an individual, right, to address those specific concerns. And to be this service oriented, you need to be present at all touch points that matter to consumers. And as a matter of fact, we were already on Amazon 
whether we want it to be there or not. And when Amazon opened to their luxury presence, which they run in a very tight mode and it's beautifully designed and they gave us an opportunity to express the brand at its fullest, we took on the opportunity and we're actually very happy about it. We have seen no cannibalization whatsoever. There is no gray market whatsoever. And not every luxury brand can say the same. And we have seen our business flourishing on Amazon, but flourishing even more in the more traditional retail spaces where we were already because we're controlling the brand. And so I thought it was um, it was something that we owed to the credit for consumers. Tell me what luxury means today to the Shiseido portfolio, because there is quite a bit of consolidation happening in beauty, you know, Sephora and Kohl's, Target and Ulta, you know, and the department stores are, are still struggling to kind of find their footing in, in this whole wild, wild west of beauty. And I think it's interesting that, you know, being where, where the customer wants you to be is very much about convenience, which we all needed during the pandemic. But how do you think the Shiseido Group feels about that? Listen, we saw the phenomenon from the consumer standpoint, because that's the only valid one. And the people always went high and low across the globe. I would say specifically in the US, but people never bought the full look from one single fashion brand or all the, their jewelry from the same jewelry brand or their makeup from the same makeup brand. So I think the brands denied that, then tried to fight against it. If you embrace that concept and you actually go where your consumers are, you don't see as many barriers. And now you have to go into places that can offer the right level of service and they can sustain the right level of price point. And, you know, and some of the things that you mentioned maybe slightly experimental. So we may sit here in three, five years and comment again about them. And some of these things will have been a success, some maybe less. But I think it's important to continue to follow the consumers where they are. I mean, you know, people wear perhaps a piece from Hermes or Gucci, but then somebody else from Zara. And, you know, and people can shop at Colts and Target as much as they shop at Saks or perhaps at Macy's or at Sephora. It could be the same consumer, right? So why wouldn't you want to serve them where she needs? Perhaps editing your catalog, perhaps making sure that the point of difference at any touch point makes sense for where she is or he is. In their, uh, in their journey. And I think this is potentially the only threat, that you copy and paste your proposition exactly as it is everywhere you go. That doesn't work, it never did. And I think that the stance that we took was to try to understand what do I know about these consumers when they are at Target or they are at Coles? And what is the difference? versus when they go to Sephora or to Macy's or to Alta. How can I augment my narrative and make sure my proposition is just as valid when they visit these places? When you think about digital transformation, obviously that's a big part of your role. 
uh, Alessio, what does that entail? Because I mean, right now we're in this stage of everyone's obsessed with TikTok. We're talking about NFTs. We're talking about gaming. I mean, gone are the days of just having one platform like Facebook and maybe your website. Well, first of all, I have to tell you, Priya, I, I love it because it's changing so much and you wake up the next day and there is something else that you can test. So this is really keeping us alive. I think with TikTok and at a certain extent, you know, Clubhouse, you mentioned NFT, there is a Roblox, so there is so much choice. I think it's telling us a couple of things. First of all, no one has a dominant position, right? Even players like Facebook and Instagram with the tremendous volume that they have, even the the capital power, the political influence, you name it, they may be challenged one day by a small platform that all of a sudden, you know, changes the point of view. And these platforms change the point of view because we're moving from being influencers driven to being content driven. Right. So it, the point of view of TikTok is the content. It's not about how many people follow you. It's how many people like your content, which is a completely different point of view. And it offers a substantially new opportunity to brands. So for us um, within the digital transformation team that I manage, the number one objective that we continue to pursue is the ongoing redefinition of what the luxury beauty online means from an experiential standpoint, right? What, what matters to consumers when we were through, throughout the pandemic, we very quickly rolled out live streaming or a direct selling or all sorts of forms of direct to consumer, omni-channel, pick up in the store, right? We tried to reinvent the proposition immediately because this is what was needed. And we are in the process of reinventing it again because consumers' um, options are even more right now and they are adapting again to the post-pandemic. So I, I do believe that this will keep us busy for, for a while. Um, you open the newspaper and everybody's talking about the metaverse, right? Is it a fad? Is it just a nickname for something that we already have? Or is it a real opportunity? I personally believe in it. I don't think it's commercially ready right now, but why not exploring that? And, you know, so we are vetting all these opportunities. We're experimenting the beauty of having a portfolio, like the one that we have at Shiseido, and also the connections that we have internationally is that we can pilot multiple things at the same time. And then we can transversalize the learnings across the, the brands that we own for, for a bigger, faster lift. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. When you think about, you know, what might be right for each brand in America, um, whether it's Shiseido or Clay de Poe or any of the other amazing brands within your portfolio, how do you decide, you know, who to, who to play where? You know, obviously NARS is on Clubhouse and has been doing some things on TikTok. You know, Clay de Poe has not totally shown up on TikTok quite yet. I know that might be in the works. So where do you take your chances and your bets? 
So we normally start with displaying the opportunity to our brands. So we have communities of people that gather around certain tables on an ongoing basis and they pay attention to what is changing in the space. And this is normally how pilots are defined, right? So NARS could say, I really think that Roblox is important for me. And maybe somebody else talks about TikTok. In other cases, we encourage brands to take a little bit of a risk. In other cases, we fund pilots. So in in general, overall as a portfolio, we're always out there experimenting with something else as fast as we can, because we want to remain on the forefront of change. You know, sometimes it's not about starting an experiment that is challenging. It's about stopping it. It's about acknowledging success or acknowledging failure. You know, sometimes people have a hard time in letting go stuff that actually are now working, right? And concluding that pilot and moving on. So we pay just as much attention to collecting the data and setting a deadline for us to say, this is interesting for us or it is not. That's an interesting point because, you know, obviously, for the last, you know, at least eight years, I would say everyone has been obsessed with Instagram, you know, and, you know, that was the place where you could really see transformations in beauty before and afters, all of that. And I've seen a lot of brands kind of really shift from posting and, and content and working with creators on Instagram to now just focusing on Gen Z and TikTok. How do you feel about that kind of thing? We, in general, do not believe in shifting and riding whatever waves just because it's available to us. We continue to consider these platforms within the context that they operate within, right? So what is the role today of Instagram versus what was the role of Instagram five years ago or even just pre-pandemic? Has it changed? Yes or no? And if if it did change... How can I leverage that at the best of my abilities? We we do believe that, and they mentioned Instagram only because you mentioned that it is here to stay. And of course, it's evolving as a platform. And you're right that there is a TikTok in the game right now, but we don't have to forget that attention is a zero-sum game. Right. So there is there is an opportunity here for brands, but there is also a risk to spread themselves very, very thin. And what is appropriate for one brand may not be appropriate for another. So I remember that already three years ago, because it was well before the pandemic, we hosted a regroup with the TikTok people here in the office in New York. And we told them, where do you want to go with that, right? Why do you even compete in this space? What is your point of difference? And that's where the conversation started. And then the adoption became to start to unroll. Um, and I think what is important is that you continue to pay attention to the changes in the space. You continue to experiment, but you don't want to swing right and left too fast. I think your consumers are fast, but you have to bring them with you sometimes. What innovations are you focused on with Clay Depot and Shiseido specifically? Can you share anything that you're thinking about? 
Listen, we think that the innovation that is most interesting for us today is around the content production, right? So if you look at the evolution of content, we moved from traditional social, you know, social outlets used as a sub for a media deployment to social commerce where somebody said, hey, you can actually sell stuff on in this space. And in fact, it works to social creation where the UGC and, you know, co-creation with influencers. And now there is this micronization of content. If you take a platform like TikTok, where time is very short, it's very actionable, it's very eye-catching, but it's also very, very highly volatile. Like the lifespan of the content is almost non-existing. Content exists because there is another piece of content that you are about to read. And that is making us think, right? You know, should we go into sequential content? You know, are these big uh, movies that we were shooting in the past still relevant tomorrow? Or should we do uh, many small clips, one after the other, that you can scroll through very, very fast and then in time they tell the story? So I think what is very influential for us is the way narrative is evolving. And we're taking very important clues from the most uh, progressive social platforms today. What would you say, you know, the influence of Asia has been on the U.S. business? I'm asking because, you know, one thing that we always hear so much about is this concept of live streaming, you know, that, you know, what's going on there is going to happen here, but the adoption has been much slower. So when you think about how you're learning from those teams and how the customer is reacting here, do you think it's a viable selling channel or it's going to be? I think it is more of an upper funnel, middle funnel tool here in the US than it is in China, where live stream was really born and where it scaled first and foremost at that magnitude. Uh, There are many innovations that were born in the US and then they moved to China and then they're coming back. Think about the QR code. I remember very well, I think it was 2008 when Louis Vuitton actually covered the building on 57th with a gigantic QR code that was designed by actually a Japanese artist, right? And But who would use a QR code until... Again, the pandemic, now you go to the restaurant and you don't have your paper menu anymore. And everybody has been trained to use your camera to click on a QR code. Whereas in China, already 10 years ago, everybody would pay through QR codes, even the, the, you know, the street food, the street car food, uh, that you would buy a sandwich from a lunch break, you would pay them with a QR code 10 years ago. So it's very interesting how different pieces of innovation resonate in, in different countries. When it goes to live streaming, we have been experimenting a lot across all of the brands and we are learning a lot about you know, how long it should be. 
how promotional it should be, you know, what type of narrative you should entertain, how much intervention from consumers you need to have throughout the show to keep it alive. But if you think about it, live streaming was actually invented in the US with TV retail, with QVC and HSN. Isn't that more or less the same thing, just in a different media? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, when all of these people are talking about Instagram shopping or Facebook live shopping, you know, it's really QVC or HSN all over again. I know that you guys have tried some things on your own site with Chriselle Lim and, you know, really ex- exciting tastemakers. How have those worked for you? Um, we're learning a lot from those experiments. What we see is that they can be a great acquisition tool and they work very well in the direction of improving the lifetime value of those consumers. So once again, these innovations are not self-contained. You have to be able to interject the live streaming at the right point in time from the consumer perspective along the journey. And I think this is a challenge. Where does it leave? Because you tend to look at your programming as a very brand-centric type of thing, right? I have time on December 15th. This is where I'm going to book the celebrity and I'm going to have my show. But from a consumer standpoint, this could be completely irrelevant. And so we're learning about the value of being alive versus being broadcasted or being uh, versus being played again. So for example, we see that we receive just as many views from the live shows versus those who play the show again when the show is over. And we see that there is a delay between when people watch the show, whether it is live or it's replayed when versus when people shop with us. And this is why I was telling you this is more of an upper funnel, middle funnel type of tool, whereas in China, it's very bottom funnel. But it's also the scale and the critical mass that they achieved is different. So who am I to say that in three years from now, this could be the most relevant shopping tool in the U.S. as well? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think about even with the pandemic, the acceleration of e-commerce in that same way, you know, like when boomers were shopping online and they could never, I mean, my parents could never order anything on Amazon. And now, you know, they're, it's old hat. And the QR codes is another great example. Like, you know, QR codes were dead and now they are the most important thing here in cities like New York or in LA. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, like what makes a good live stream? Because I feel like there is still a lot of work to be done here in the US in terms of finding the right influencer, the right partner, the right timing. Um, it's not exactly rocket science, but it's it's not as well executed as is on T-Ball, right? Yes, I mean, what we're seeing without disclosing too much, and again, there isn't a magic recipe that you can apply to everybody, but what we see that to keep it concise, to keep it very, very authentic, to keep it bi-directional and engaging because you go to these shows because you can say something, right? You can chat with the talent uh, real time. So you expect that your comments are acknowledged and they are responded. And also to keep it tight in terms of number of products that you show. 
I think sometimes there is an appetite from brands to showcase their full buffet and that doesn't necessarily work. So you can have multiple live streaming sessions, but you have to keep it very narrow and focused. When you think about this last year, obviously 2021 was not 2020. It wasn't as dismal as 2020. But when you think about your brands and your portfolio, what were kind of the big wins or accelerations that you experienced? I believe that we showed a very resilient team, a lot of agility, the ability to flex up and down. We moved from a very physical world to a totally digital, to a hybrid world again. We are navigating supply chain disruptions that are hitting everybody and you know every consumer, every industry, every country. And we are also looking at the future with a lot of confidence. Uh, you know, this could have been, this has been an incredibly challenging time for uh, almost all of us. And it, it was not easy to keep the community of the Shiseido employees together. I think the company did a fantastic job to keep us protected and engaged and uh, we are uh, looking at 2022 as another very interesting year. Uh, we don't think that the world is out of the woods entirely, but we do look at innovation as a potential solution to many of our problems again. Thank you so much, Alessio. It was so great having you. Um, I'm excited to see what the brand is doing this year. And of course, for holiday, I mean, who knows what's going to happen with supply chain. Exactly. Thank you, Priya. And please stay tuned. Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. Tune in next week for another episode. And if you know someone or more than one who should be listening to the Glossy Beauty Podcast, please have them subscribe.